you have your Bibles, you can open them to Exodus chapter 30. Uh, For those of you who uh, were not with us last week, uh, we talked about the brazen altar, or what is known as the altar of burnt offering. The brazen altar is a picture of the death of a substitute, and it conveys the importance of blood being shed for the remission of sin. We talked at length about that, and we we discovered that the brazen altar points very clearly to the cross of Calvary and the death of the perfect once and for all sacrifice. We don't need to keep making sacrifices. He did it once and for all. He is our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we discussed last week, because of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, our sin has been atoned for. And, and all we have to do is simply receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Uh, I really felt this week as I was preparing that I needed to go back and revisit that because I really believe that we think that eternal life is something that happens when we get to heaven, that we wait for heaven to obtain eternal life. But the word eternal, if you look it up in the original language, it means perpetual, ongoing life. It means life abundant, a life that begins the day that you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and continues on throughout eternity. And and it's so interesting to me that the people, we, we live so miserable and yet we're, we're believers. And he says that there's a place in him that we can experience an abundance of life regardless of our circumstances. And that, my friends, is eternal life. John, 15, or John 12, 50, I was studying this week and I came across this verse and I thought I have to find a way to fit it in tonight's teaching. Uh, uh, John 12, verse 50 says this, And I know that the Father's commands result in eternal life. And that is why I speak the very words I speak. The reason I preach the way I preach, the reason I drive you back to the word at every chance I get is because I understand that the Father's commands result in eternal life. I understand that his commands bring life. I understand that when we obey God's word, even when it's not easy, even when I'd rather make a different choice, I understand that when I do what God commands me to do, I get life from it. Following his word, obeying his commands, and living according to his will results in ongoing perpetual life eternal. A life that cannot be snuffed out by our circumstances, by the grouchy person sitting next to us, by by the difficult spouse we live with. It can't be snuffed out. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. You see, eternal life, getting life, feeling life, even when we're depressed, comes from knowing. And that word know, you've heard me say it a million times, doesn't just mean head knowledge. It means I'm intimately acquainted with God. I know him. I'm intimate with him. And I'm just going to tell you, Leslie is my best friend, but she cannot give me life. I'm just going to suck her dry if I try to find life from her. I got the best husband in the whole wide world, but, but if I try to find life from him, I will drain him of life. You cannot find what you need in a person. You will push them away and drain them. Eternal life. This is eternal life that you know him that you know God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and that you don't just know about Him, that you know Him intimately. And that's where we let let off last week. And you'll remember the week before we talked about that white linen fence and how our sin and God's righteousness keeps us separated from, from God because He's righteous and how He made one way. We talked about that front gate being the only way into the tabernacle. We enter through the gate, the gate called Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the truth and the life. He's the only way to the Father. You come into the tabernacle, now you're in the tabernacle. Remember, we've talked about the tabernacle as a picture of Christ. So now when we enter through the gate of salvation through Jesus Christ, 
We're in Christ. We're in the tabernacle now. We, we stop at the brazen altar. That's a picture of sacrifice. It's a picture of the once and for all sacrifice that Christ Jesus made. And so we're going to look at the brazen laver, laver tonight. And, and that is in Exodus chapter 30. If you want to open your Bibles there, uh, we're going to pick up there tonight. I'm going to try to go through it quickly. There's a lot of information, but uh, I, I just really want to, I want to make sure you get this deep in your spirit. There's so much to learn here. Uh, but would you just pray with me before we begin? Father, I thank you and I praise you for your word. Lord, I'm asking you for mercy and grace, for power from on high, Lord God, that you would anoint my words, that you would grant me authority with your word, that you would grant the people a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would have insight and understanding into your word. Lord, that you would shine your light on your word and grant us just, just a, a, a supernatural understanding of what you want us to learn tonight. Guide us into all truth. Direct us, I pray. Teach us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, we're going to pick up at the bronze uh, laver, uh, and then we'll continue with some of the other pieces of furniture in the weeks to come before moving on to the priesthood. I, I'm going to spend some time talking about the priesthood, about the ephod that, that Karen was talking about tonight, um, about his his robes, about his, uh, the, the headpiece he wears. And we're going to talk at length about the priesthood. And you say, well, Rhea, why do we have to do that? Because the Bible says that, that the, the priest in the, in the tabernacle is a type of believer in Christ. We are a royal priesthood. And all of us who trust Jesus alone for salvation have unlimited 24-7 access to the presence of God and to minister on his behalf. And so you, you need to keep in mind that tonight we're going to talk about the laver and only the priest could use the laver. But we are the priesthood of believers. We are priests. And so we're talking about ourselves as we go through this picture tonight. I want you to see that we end it with the brazen altar and now we're progressing forward to the labor and then we'll get into the most holy place and the holy of holies. And it's a picture of progressing. You see, I really want to tell you that we need to progress in our Christian walk. I really, I, this is my, this is my, 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 my bone, I, I, I just, I can get on a soapbox here because what I see is Christians who are really satisfied being saved, being satisfied that they have a sacrifice made for their sin and they can look forward to eternal life in heaven with Jesus someday. And you're satisfied there. And we're outer court Christians. We're happy to stay outside of the presence of God. But I just want to tell you, there is so much more. Salvation is just the starting place. It's just the starting place. And we need to progress. The, the Bible says to walk, and that word means to make progress, to walk out our salvation, to, to walk out the Christian life. We need to make progress in our walk. I need to look different this year than I did last year at this time. Next year when you see me, yeah, I should look different than I look tonight. I should look a little bit more like Jesus because we're called to progress in our Christian walk. And yet we're so satisfied to, to just be saved and going to heaven. And there is so much more. But so many of us are just content being saved. But that's only the beginning. Our goal is a deeper experience of Christ to share intimacy and connection with him, to learn what it means to experience his glory and to live in his presence, to grow up into maturity. Uh, my, my grandson, Mason, I, I just, oh, I FaceTime him every day. I, I love that boy so much, I can't even tell you. I, I, I just say to my daughter, just put Mason on. I, she's like, Mom, what about me? And I'm like, I just want to see Mason. Can I just talk to Mason? And but I just, oh... But, but I'm telling you, he's a tiny little boy. But, but when, when my daughter gave birth to him, we brought him home. And, and we did not just put him in a crib and say, hey, Mason, take care of yourself. We, we, we didn't do that. She feeds him. She nurtures him. And he's growing up. Today, he went for a weight check. And she called and said, Mama, Mason gained a pound in this many days. And, and we were so excited about this pound this little tiny boy uh, gained. 
He's making progress. And you and I are called to make progress in our Christian walk. The church today, I believe, is full of babies, newborn babies. And we are not discipling. I, I know that you, have a, you, you really get tired of my teaching and, and, and you just go on and on and on, Rhea. But you see, I take very seriously that I am raising up disciples. Leslie said she spends more time in the Word than anybody I know I do because I take very seriously my Christian walk. And anybody who's within earshot of me, I say, God, you put me in their life for a reason and I'm going to disciple them and I'm going to raise them up strong because we're called to progress on to maturity. Mason, if he is still laying in the crib, whining and crying for, for milk and not progressing and sitting up and crawling and then walking, there is something wrong with him. And that's the church today. We cannot be satisfied to be immature Christians who are satisfied to be fed milk. We need to grow up and mature. And this is a picture of progress, of making progress in our Christian walk. Um, at the altar, the sins of the priests and the congregation were forgiven once and for all for us. And, and, and we, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our brazen altar, we are justified on the basis of his blood that was shed for us. Because of the sacrifice he made, our, our sin was atoned for, and God now looks upon us at just, as just as if we've never sinned. But when they went to that laver or to that bronze and brazen altar, they made a sacrifice and their sin was atoned for and they could walk away knowing that the wrath of God had been dismissed in their life because of that sacrifice. But now there was a deeper place of consecration and that, had, that took place at that laver. At the laver, the priests were repeatedly cleansed from the defilement of the world. And that had to be done, you'll see it in our reading, that had to be done on an ongoing basis before they could enter the holy place. So the altar, the bronze, the brazen altar speaks of justification. These are words you're going to learn. And the laver speaks of sanctification. Uh, I'm going to discuss those two terms with you because the, so often the church isn't even familiar with those terms. Have you ever heard the saying that there are three tenses of salvation in the word of God? Um, I, I'm, I've been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. Do you know that all three of those tenses are in the word of God? You see, if I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I have been set free. I've been saved from the penalty of sin. But I'm being set free from the power of sin in my life. And someday, when I stand before God face to face, I shall be saved from the presence of sin. So I'm being saved, I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. Those are the three tenses of salvation, and I'll show you where they are in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. Now, this is justification. This is, I have been saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by, by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior through faith, my sins were forgiven, past, present, and future, and I was delivered from sin's penalty. I, I didn't have time to make you uh, worksheets this week, but if I did, that would have been a fill in the blank. When I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I was, I was saved from sin's penalty. So through faith, I'm declared righteous. It's just as if I've never sinned. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's my position now. When God looks on me, it's just as if I've never sinned. That's justification. He sees the righteousness of, of God in Christ Jesus. You see, justification is more than just a pardon for my sins. It's declaring the sinner righteous. And it's important to note that the sinner is not made righteous. He's declared righteous. See, that's where we get messed up in the church today. You see, righteousness through justification is a, is a position. It's not a condition. 
That's why people who get saved, that they still do all kinds of naughty things. And you think, are they even saved? Because their position is just as if they've never sinned, but they're still sinning. Do you see it? That's justification. And that's that brazen altar. But as we progress to the the labor, I'm being saved. That's sanctification. And and that's a present tense. And and we see that in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, believers, who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's the being saved. Well, if I was already saved, Rhea, how am I now being saved? What does that look like if I've already been saved? Do you see it? 2 Corinthians 2.15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This is sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we're being delivered from sin's power. I've been delivered from sin's penalty. I don't need to fear the wrath of God anymore, but that sin still has a little power in my life. And so as I walk and the closer I get to God and the more time I spend in his word, you see the labor is a washing. It's a picture of the word of God. As I spend time in his word, letting it wash over me, letting it cleanse me, I am being delivered from the power of sin in my life. I'm learning to say no to ungodliness and say yes to righteousness. Sanctification means I'm set apart. I'm set apart by God, for God, from sin, unto a holy life. Justification happens at the moment of salvation, and it's a one-time work of God. But sanctification is a lifelong process. If I had a fill-in-the-blank for you, I would have you write that. Sanctification is a lifelong process, and it moves the believer From spiritual immaturity to maturity, as we choose to believe God's word, apply it to our life, and live under the lordship of Jesus Christ doing his will. Justification is peace with God. Sanctification is feeling the peace of God in your life as you walk in obedience to his word. The last tense, I will be saved, that's glorification. That happens in heaven. It's a future tense. We see that in Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You see, one day in heaven, when I stand in his presence, we'll be delivered from sin's presence. And so we see all three tenses of salvation in those scriptures. If you flip over to Acts 24, uh, verse 24, we we see a story about um, Paul meeting with Governor Felix. And Felix is intrigued by Paul. And he sends for him. And he says, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. Isn't it interesting? When somebody starts to talk about righteousness, justice, and self-control, we want to send them away. Uh, When it's convenient, I'll start doing that in my life. But those are all three tenses of salvation there. Uh, Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. John Stott believes, as I do, that all three tenses of salvation are found in that passage. So you have been saved. You don't need to keep doing it. I, I, I love to go to the South to speak when I do conferences down there. That they'll, they'll give altar calls all the time, and they'll want me to give one altar call after another, and people who have been in the church forever will get saved again and again and again and again. You see, you don't need to get saved over and over and over. It's like salvation didn't take the first time. They think they can lose their salvation. I'm just going to tell you, if you can lose your salvation, you never had it to begin with. Because I read the Bible that says nobody can snatch you out of his hand. And so it, people who have lost their salvation never had it to begin with. And, but, but the reality is those people uh, who, who feel like they've lost their salvation, what I really believe happens is they've never truly surrendered their will to God. They've never submitted to the life-giving power from above. And so there won't be lasting change 
in their life. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is walking out holiness. It's it's learning to walk in accordance with God's word. It's learning to say no to ungodliness, even when I want to, when I want to do it, I'm going to let God sanctify me and set me apart in his word. And that is the the labor. And we're going to see that. Turn back to Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it for Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or whether they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. If you underline in your Bible, look at that two times in two verses. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generation. Flip back to Exodus chapter 38. I just want to read one verse, verse 8. Exodus 38, verse 8. And he made the laver of bronze, its base of bronze, from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. We'll come back to that, but I just wanted to read that while we had our Bibles open. So as I said, the bronze laver was located between the the brazen altar and the curtain door to the holy place. It was the second piece of furniture with which the priest would encounter on his way into the presence of God, into the holy place. And according to Exodus 30, verses 18 and 19, it was a place of washing. It was solid bronze. We've talked about bronze several times over the last couple of weeks. And, and so we know that bronze was symbolic of judgment. This was solid bronze, and it was filled with water that set on a base or a pedestal of bronze. I don't have a picture for you because there, there's so much discrepancy on how big this laver was. It's fascinating to me that of all the pieces of furniture, as picky as God got about dimensions, he never gave dimensions for this piece of furniture. Do you know why? I believe that the labor is symbolic of the cleansing power of God's word. Can I just tell you, it is limitless. You cannot put a limit on the the cleansing power of God's word. And I don't think it's ironic that we don't have measurements for this one piece of furniture. Read through this passage. God is particular. He, He was very specific on the sizes of almost everything in this tabernacle except the labor. There was no wood used in building this labor. It was solid. So we we said solid bronze speaks of the judgment of God, but water, what does water speak of? The cleansing power of the word of God. It can stand for for the Holy Spirit as well, but in this case, commentators say it's a symbolic of the word of God. And we see that in Ephesians 5.26 We see that Christ sanctifies and cleanses the church with the washing of the water by the word. He washes us with the water of his word. In John 15, 3, he says, we're clean because the word of God speaks to us. In John 17, 17, he says, we're sanctified and set apart by the word of truth. The word of God washes, it cleanses. It cleanses thought patterns. It cleanses behaviors. It it keeps us clean when we willingly surrender in obedience to it. Can I tell you the pain that I could have spared myself if I had surrendered to his word, to the washing of his word, instead of doing things my way? Just today, the Lord spoke to me about something in his word. I knew he spoke to me about it. It was clear. It was in me. You see, this tabernacle is in me. (laughs) That labor is in me. When I read the word of God, that word that cleanses and purifies gets deposited in me. And that word came alive in me today. And I was just irritated. Anybody besides me get irritated sometimes. And I got irritated and I snapped. And I knew immediately I should have done that. And I thought, what? I could. And then then it just got downhill from there. It just went downhill fast from there. And I thought to myself, if I had just submitted back here to the word, 
not in a legalistic works mentality kind of way, but because I understand that his word brings life, it sanctifies, it cleanses, it purifies me. It brings life when I obey it. M.R. DeHaan says, at the laver, the sins of the saints are taken care of. At the altar, the penalty of sin was settled forever. But at the laver, the defilement of sin committed by the believer after regeneration uh, is provided for completely. The laver speaks of separation from the world through confession of sin and the cleansing by the word of God. It speaks of self-judgment and a yielding to God for his service alone. What, what he's saying is, when I go to the word of God and I read, I, I, I read that word, I look into it like a mirror. Isn't it ironic that, that this labor what was, was formed by the mirrors of the women? The, the women donated their mirrors. I'm telling you, that's a sacrifice, isn't it? You all made a sacrifice to give me a gift tonight. And sacrifices are costly. David says, I will not offer a sacrifice to God that doesn't cost me anything. I want it to be a costly sacrifice. And God sees that. And, and, and I'm telling you, that's a costly sacrifice. Give up your mirror as a woman. Are you kidding me? And yet they willingly gave their mirrors to build this brazen altar. Now, when the priest goes to that to wash his hands and his feet, and he bends over that brazen altar or that brazen laver to, to wash his hands, what does he see? Because mirrors were used. He's seeing a reflection of himself in that labor. Oh, I could sit there and preach all night on that because the Bible says that the word of God is like a mirror. That a man who looks into a mirror and can walk away and forget what he looks like. You see, when I look into the word of God, I should catch a reflection of myself. I should see the dirt on my face. I should see the dirt in my life. I should see the things that God says, we need to deal with that. Real. Let's get this taken care of. But you see, I can walk away and forget what I looked like. But you see, at the laver, the priests would have, would have stepped and they would have reached down to wash their hands and they would have caught a reflection of themselves in that laver. Fascinating, isn't it? And they were commanded to wash there, not once a year, not once a week. They were commanded to wash there repeatedly, repeated times a day. They were washing in that labor. And it's a picture of our repentance. You say, Rhea, I don't need to repent. My sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. I'm not going to argue that point with you. I am so tired of that kind of garbage coming out of the church. John says, if we confess our sins, we, he's including himself as a believer. You see, people that argue this point are, are, are immature believers who do not have a correct handle on the word of God. If you're hearing that kind of teaching in the church you're in, run the other direction. I'm telling you, it is bad teaching. John says, if we, himself, a believer, confess our sin, he is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, Rhea, I already have been. Yes, past, present, and future. That happened on the cross of Calvary. You were, were, were saved from the penalty of sin, the wrath of God. But now you get defiled. You see these priests. Do you know what the floor of that tabernacle was made of? Anybody? Dirt. <laughs> so as they're walking through the tabernacle, their feet are getting dirty. Then they're doing sacrifices. So they're getting death, blood on their hands. Are you with me? And so the, before they could go into the presence of God, sacrifice has already been made for the wrath of God. But before they can go into the presence of God, to his glory, if you want to experience his glory, this is what you have to do. If you don't stay out in the outer courts, I don't care, but you will never get into his presence. You'll never get into his glory. You will never see the Shekinah glory come down in your life. That takes intentionality to sanctify and set yourself apart for his glory. That takes you looking into the labor of his word and saying, Lord, I know I, I really feel justified in this behavior. I really feel like I have a right to be angry and nasty and unkind. I really feel like I have a right to be jealous and not forgiving. I really feel, I just, I'm just going to walk away and forget what I look like after I looked in that mirror. Or you can say, I just caught a glimpse of something ugly 
on me. And I want you to wash it away, Lord. Because you see, I want to know you. Because this is eternal life. That you may know him. And the closer I get to you, Lord, the the tighter it gets where you say, can't tolerate that anymore in your life, Rhea. If you want a taste of my presence, if you want a taste of the glory, you won't tolerate that. Yes, you've been forgiven. Yes, the penalty has been paid for your sin. But do you want more? Do you want to go deeper with me? If you do, you will wash. You will wash. You will let my word wash over you. You'll catch a reflection of your life as you wash in that word. Remember, it's a picture of the word of God, the washing uh, 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 with the word. I gave you scripture after scripture. I only gave you a handful of the many that talk about washing of the word with the word of God. That labor is a picture of the word of God. And as priests, we need to flood our life with the word of God. I just read this. Get me back on track. Keep that thought. I just read this fascinating thing that I just have to share, and I'm so afraid I'm going to forget, so I'm going I'm to fast forward. I was bothered that we don't see many references to the laver throughout the Old Testament. As they walk through the wilderness, we kind of lose sight of the laver. I'm like, what is up with that? And then I found a commentator that said it's a picture of the Israelites, and, and they're not having time <laughs> for God's, God's will and his word in their life. And I thought, wow, Lord, that is just like us. And then I found that in, the, in Solomon's temple, he brought the laver back, and the laver he calls a sea of molten. He doesn't even call it a laver. He calls it a sea of molten. And, and, and the commentators I read said it had something like 12, don't quote me, 1,200 gallons of water. And that's how big it was. The commentators I read said 15 priests could take a bath in it at the same time. Picture a big jacuzzi, a big one. That's how big that laver would have been. But he called it the Sea of Molten. And I thought, that's good. And then I started to dig a little bit. And we see it fast forward in in Revelation like 15, where he talks about the Sea of Glass. Anybody but me ever wonder about the Sea of Glass? You know the scripture that says they were there having worship by the Sea of Glass. And the King of Kings was there. And it's such a glorious picture. And it says that there was fire burning. And there was a Sea of Glass. (laughs) Laver. Laver. And it's a picture of the holiness and and the fire, the the purifying fire. And they're all worshiping by the altar. You see, they're free from sin's presence now. And it was a reminder. That, that, That sea of glass was just a reminder. But the labor is a picture of self judgment. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31 says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. You see, if we judge ourselves and correct ourselves as we sit before the word of God and let it wash over us and, and cleanse us, the word, the word says that if we did that, the Lord would not have to chasten us. But you see, he chastens those he loves. He treats us like sons and a good father chastens his sons. And see, that goes against a lot of your theology. You don't like the fact that God chastens, but you see, uh, scripture says that he chastens because it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by his chastening. And he says, you see, all of this could be avoided if you just opened up the laver of his word and you just let it wash over you and you let it cleanse you of the garbage that you are taking into that's defiling your life. And and the chastening of the Lord could be avoided if you just allowed the word to do its work in your life. But since you won't have it, you won't self-judge. You won't go to his word and self-judge. What does he have to do? Chasten us. Because he understands that the chastening of the Lord, the word says, produces a harvest of righteousness in your life. You're living right. And it produces peace for those who are trained by it. That was 1 Corinthians 11.31. Yep. So the priests were required to, to wash both their hands and their feet before going into the presence of God. So they couldn't minister before the Lord nor go into his presence without washing their hands and feet. And I told you it wasn't a one-time thing. It was several times a day. And so picture it. 
Several times a day, uh, they're, they're dealing with their own sin. They're, 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 they're dealing with the sin of the people who are, who are bringing sacrifices. Day after day, hour after hour, they were making those sacrifices and their hands were covered with death and they needed to wash the defilement of that death away in their life. They were dealing with somebody who was bringing a sacrifice. They're interacting with somebody who, who's presenting that sacrifice. They're dealing with death. Are you with me? And, and they got defiled by that. Every day we're interacting with the world and what the world says is okay, that's really sin. And our minds are getting defiled by that garbage. We're getting defiled just by our interaction with that kind of stuff. Their feet were getting dirty just by the dust on the ground, just walking and, and going to their day-to-day -day business. Their feet were getting dirty and had to be washed. Jesus said to the disciples the night before he was crucified, he washed their feet. Peter says, I want a bath. Just if you're going to wash my feet, then give me a bath. Wash the whole thing. Jesus said, you don't need a bath. You don't need a bath. And he was saying, you've already been saved is what he said. When you've already been saved, you don't need a bath anymore. You just need your feet washed because you picked up defilement as you walk through life. You see, I'm intentional about this. I've been I prayed with people who'd be like, I'm not praying with her anymore because she confesses her sin in prayer. Leslie, am I exaggerating? I want to pretty much slap them silly. That's ignorance is what that is. You see, I will not come into his presence with dirty hands and dirty feet. Who can ascend the high hill of holiness? Him with clean hands and a pure heart. And who will not lift who will not lift himself to an, to an idol. I'm intentional about the labor. On the way here, I was like, Lord, let me just tell you, I'm so grateful for the brazen altar. I'm so grateful that you've forgiven me, that you cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I'm so grateful that it's just as if I've never sinned. That's my position, but it's not my condition. Because if you had been with me today, you would say, it's just as if she's never sinned. She snapped at Dave. Went to the labor. I caught a reflection of myself in his word that came up in me because I am the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. He brought his word to my mind. He said, Rhea, if you just let that wash over you and wash over that attitude, it'll cleanse you. And then when you come into my presence to preach, the glory can fall. I would not want to do that. Now, if I didn't do that, it, would I still die and go to heaven? Mm-hmm. Because it's a once and for all sacrifice that's through faith, by grace. Washing at the laver was like a pin code or a password into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. You see, they could not get into that, into that holy place unless they had washed. That was the condition. Their sins could be forgiven, but communion with God could not happen until they washed. And it was such a picture for us of the importance of cleansing before we enter the presence of God. Arthur Pink says this, and I love it. The laver tells of the need of cleansing if communion with God is to be maintained. Cleansing not from the guilt of sin, but from the defilement on the way. I told you, unlike most of the furniture, there isn't any dimensions given. The word laver actually means round or watchful. And so that's where we get the, the, the shape. Because God said, make it a laver. So they knew it was a washbowl. But there was no other divine blueprint given for size and dimensions. And I told you, I believe that that's because there are no measurements or limits on the limitless cleansing power of God. God doesn't care how many times I snap at Dave and then go to him and say, I did it again. He just says, Rhea, wash, wash, start afresh tomorrow, wash. He's not, oh, here she comes again, can't believe she did it. You see, the penalty for my sin has been paid. There's now, therefore, no condemnation. I can come boldly and wash. I told you Exodus 38, 8 says that they use their, the, the women's mirrors, the bronze mirrors. And think about mirrors for a moment. A mirror is vital to staying presentable. If I look into a mirror to see if there's a smudge on my face or if my hair is disheveled, it helps me to bring order back into my life. And James says that the word of God is like a mirror. 
It brings order back into my life. It helps me to know where there's a smudge that needs to be cleaned up. Mirror reflects our image. It revealed man to himself is what it did. Behan says mirrors were for the glorification of the flesh and the gratification of the old nature. They're a symbol of human vanity and pride. And so the labor speaks of separation from the flesh and from the world and from the old nature with its pride, lusts, habits, and sins. Romans 3.20 says, For it is the law that fully exposes and unmasks the reality of sin. See, the word of God reveals and unmasks my heart to me as I study and allow it to wash over me. But sadly, the Bible says we're deceived by the pride of our heart. Washing was vital in order for the priest to go deeper into the tabernacle. The congregation had to stay outside and they were content to stay outside. But the priest got to go into the holy place, into the holy of holies. And the question for you tonight is, where are you content to stay? Do you want to go deeper into the things of God? Do you want to experience him at a level that others rarely even taste of? The laver symbolizes separation from the world and its defilement. God calls us to come out from among them, to separate from them. We've so watered down the gospel message. We, we've created a body of believers who are satisfied for superficial preaching. People who are never really changed by the gospel that they hear. I teach a Friday morning study and a lot of you are here that come to it and people are always asking if they can come and I'm very particular about the people that come to that study. They're people who want to go deeper. They're people who will allow me to hold them accountable and I do. There are people who, who I will say, you know what? You could have responded differently there. You could have allowed God to work in your life. You, you, could have, you could have let that word wash over you in that situation. And it's not a works mentality. It's people who say, I want more. I want to go up higher with him. I want a taste of his presence like I never have before. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to abide by his role, his, his word. I'm willing to separate myself from the world and not do it the way the world does it. There's a cost to that. You can stay in the outer court. You can give God lip service. There are people who can give me a date and a time that they've been saved, that they can say without a shadow of a doubt, if they died tomorrow, they were going to heaven, but they've never tasted the presence of God. There's so much more. People who confess that they are Christians, but they're not a whole lot different than the unbeliever down the street. And it's because they've never paused to catch a glimpse of themselves in the labor. Psalm 23, or 24, 3 and 4 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? That's not in the courtyard, the holy place. Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he, that man, shall receive blessing from the Lord. As I said, the labor speaks of self-judgment. We have been freed from the judgment of God, but now those people allow the word of God to judge their thoughts and the intents of their heart and to deal with the defilement they pick up along the way. It's a difference between position and condition. One last thing I want you to see before we go, look in chapter 30, verse 20 and 21. They shall wash with water lest they die. He says it twice in verse 20 and then again in verse 21. Let them wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And this shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generation. A statute forever to the priests. We are priests. It's a statute forever that we need to wash, that we need to wash lest we die. You can't die spiritually anymore. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to heaven. But I'm telling you, there's something about letting his word wash over us. There's something about saying no to ungodliness because his word says to do it. There's a life that comes with that that you can't get in the outer court. Will you still die and go to heaven? Absolutely, positively, 100%. Because it's by grace 
through faith and not by works. But there's so much more. There's so much more. Fascinating to me, I, I, I try to end each week telling you how they transported the piece of furniture throughout the wilderness. Remember, I love the brazen altar wrapped in purple, covered in badger skin so people couldn't appreciate it walking through the wilderness because it's only for people who have come through the veil. It's interesting to me that when I studied the transport of the laver, they didn't wrap it in anything. It was the only piece of furniture that wasn't covered in the transport. Why do you think that is? People could get a glimpse of themselves wherever they were. Yep, mm-hmm. But I also believe it's because the purifying power of God's word is available to anyone who will look and pause to catch a glimpse of themselves. I can't tell you the people who I've met that don't know Jesus that I'm able to say, let's see what God's word says about that. Let's just open up God's word here. And they get God's word and they they haven't even received him as their Lord and Savior. But that word speaks to their heart. It comes alive to them. They see something in in his word that draws them to it. I think it's fascinating that it's the only piece of furniture that is not covered. The word labor comes from the root word meaning to dig through. My Friday morning people will really like this. It means furnish, a furnace, forge. It means to bore, to pierce, to dig. (laughs) How many times does that happen when you get in the Word? And he digs through a mindset that you really were set on. (laughs) Or he bores through to pierce you with his Word. He says, make a labor. And that word make means to labor or to produce by labor. Can I tell you? When I crawl out of bed at four o'clock in the morning and I look over and Dave is still in bed, I'm thinking, not fair. I want to be in bed. But I understand if I'm going to let the Lord dig through and pierce my life, it requires labor. It requires getting me out of my comfort zone and you don't get to sleep, Rhea, if you're really serious about this thing. It's interesting, the word bronze, if you look it up in the original language, it means judgment. It means sin, uh, judgment for sin. But I saw something. It's interesting. I have about 30 commentaries on Exodus, and that's what I read to teach. This week, I was sitting at my desk, and I heard the Lord say, look up the word bronze. And I'm like, don't need to, Lord. Read 30 commentaries that all agree it means judgment for sin. (laughs) And I, I just felt this nagging Nudge, look up the word bronze in your, diction, in your Hebrew dictionary. And I'm like, Lord, it means judgment for sin. And I had this battle with him back and forth. And finally, I was like, all right. And I got my shelf and I got my Hebrew dictionary out. And I looked up the word bronze and I looked down and it said judgment for sin. And I was like, mm, see? And then I kept reading and it said lust, harlotry, impure, filthiness. Dubious. I had to look up the word dubious in Webster's, and it means unsettled in opinion and doubtful. It means questionable or suspect as to the true nature of quality. And I almost fell over. I was like, Lord, and help me just say it like you told me. When I go to that bronze labor to your word in the morning, Lord, and, and I, I labor, I, I work to get there. I, I sit before it and, and you pierce me with that word and you expose my harlotry. You expose my lustful desires chasing after the gods of this world. You expose how I, I prostitute myself with other gods while you're waiting there with, an, uh, with a totally devoted heart to me, loving me, wanting me come to you. And it's all because I'm dubious. It's all because I'm, I'm suspect about whether or not your way really works. I'm doubtful that your way, when it's hard, really works. One last thing. The word labor can also mean, if you look it up, it means bronze fetter. And I was like, how does the word labor mean bronze fetter? A fetter is something that binds It's a chain or a shackle used to restrain a prisoner, something that confines or a restraint. And I'm telling you, it was one of those headbangers for me. 
And I thought how often I refused to go and wash in his word. How often I refused to let him deal with a heart issue or a thinking pattern or a sin in my life that I like. You know, it's possible to like sin. I say, no, really. I'm with Paul. I'm the, I'm the chief among sinners. I lived a life in the muck and the mire. Somebody that tells you that sin is not tasty is super pious or don't know what they're talking about because sin is tasty for a season. But in the end, it leads to death. But it's tasty. If it wasn't tasty, nobody would ever do it. Sometimes I go to God and I'm like, I kind of like that sin. I kind of like that thought pattern. I, I kind of like that behavior because I feel strong and powerful. Or, and I don't want to catch a reflection of myself in his word, so I stay away from it. And now that sin becomes like a bronze fetter that binds me. You see, if we understood, Dave and I work with men uh, who have sex addictions and their wives, and, and, and these men, it starts out because sin is tasty for a season, but it becomes a bronze fetter on their arm. It becomes bondage for them, and they're in deep before they, and before they know it, they can't get free, and it's because God has lured them. He's drawn them. He said, just deal with it. Bring it to me because I have limitless cleansing power. You can wash a zillion times a day. I'll never turn you away. It's always there. It's never covered. I'm beckoning you to come. I'm always available. It's limitless. I'm not going to judge you for it. I've already judged Christ for it. You you will not be condemned or judged. Just come and wash. Let me take those fetters away. Let me break through those bondages. Have you washed? Have you washed? Oh, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about that process of sanctification. The Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How do I have to work it out if I'm already saved? Because you're being saved from the power of sin. You've already been saved from the penalty of sin. Now you're being saved from its power. You don't have to give in to it anymore. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is living within you. You're the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. You are in Christ. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now you have a freedom to be able to deal with those sins and to be able to understand they don't have power in your life anymore. You can have power over them. You can say no to ungodliness. And that, my friends, is how we represent him to this world, that people see something different in us and they want what we have because of it. You see, if we don't look any different than the unbeliever down the street, nobody's going to want our Jesus. Have you washed?